A warning, today's episode includes candid discussions of pregnancy complications and the loss of a child. Continue for five miles. So here we go along a palm-lined street with a blue sky behind us. Such a pretty place. And we're here for such a sad story. Exactly. Recently, I was in Lakeland, Florida. It's a small city about halfway between Orlando and Tampa. And I was with reporter Francis Steed Sellers. We were driving to see Deborah Dorbert, or Debbie, as her family calls her. Debbie and her husband, Lee, have a four-year-old named Caden. And they were so excited when they found out that he was going to have a younger sibling. But halfway through Debbie's pregnancy, at a routine anatomy scan, she learned something devastating. The fetus was not developing kidneys. The lungs would be underdeveloped, too. Doctors told her the baby wouldn't live more than a couple of hours after birth. Through the trauma of learning that, she had decided that she would um, choose to terminate that pregnancy. Um, It was a very difficult decision, but she thought it was what was right for her own physical and mental health. So Debbie and Lee had been preparing for this really difficult moment, terminating a very desired pregnancy. But then Debbie's doctors came back to her and said they couldn't do an abortion. Debbie told us that the hospital and its lawyers were worried about how a new Florida law would be interpreted. Florida's 15-week abortion ban passed after the fall of Roe v. Wade. Even though it did have an exception for fatal fetal conditions, doctors say the language is still vague and they just don't know what they can and can't do. So Debbie had to wait and carry her pregnancy to term, knowing her baby would die. Francis wrote a story about this heart-wrenching situation back in February. And Debbie's baby was born in March. She was induced early in the morning, and she was in labor for the next 12 hours. The baby was born around uh, 9.30 in the evening, as I understand it, and um, lived for an hour and a half. And during that time, Deborah said to me, um, she said it was very hard to watch a baby take its first breast and its last in her arms. Um, The baby died, I think, gasping for breath um, after an hour and a half. They had named him Milo. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman. I'm the executive producer of the show, and I'm your host today. It's Friday, May 19th. Abortion in the U.S. right now feels black and white to a lot of people. Either you're okay with it or you're not. Either it's legal or it's not. But this is a story that doesn't fit cleanly along those lines. It's a story about how these laws have unintended consequences. That people like Debbie and doctors all over the country 
are wrestling with every day. We went back to Florida to see how Debbie was doing. Francis is going to take the story from here. Mikey and I went to visit the Dorbits, and it was a beautiful sunny day. I had, of course, met Debbie and Lee before, but I'd never met Debbie's parents, Cindy and Pete Rogel. Hello, how are you? I'm Cindy, I'm Debbie's mom. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Francis. So good Hi, to meet you. you too. Nice to meet we you. We walked right in from the front door into a family scene. Debbie, Lee, little Caden running around, so proud of his new toy, and her parents there. And they were all sort of sitting around and ready to talk to us and make sense of what they'd been through in the past couple of weeks. It's pretty good. It's nice and cool outside. You want to sit yeah, outside? Yeah, let's sit outside. Outside sounds great. Right. And we sat down, Deborah, her mother and father, Lee, when he could be there, and the two of us, to talk about what they'd been through and what they were about to face. The funeral was the next day. Mentally and just... Exhausted, just still feel numb and kind of paralyzed. It was amazing to meet Debbie again so soon after giving birth. She was just two weeks postpartum, and I could tell right away that the pain of that experience was very much with her. You know, I had the baby, and you know, that was a long day of labor. Um, I mean, I went in at 7.30 in the morning, and that's when they started inducing. And I was moving pretty quickly along. I was dilating, and labor was getting more and more intense. Debbie had asked her parents to come to the hospital because they knew that that would be their only chance to meet Milo. And they were there in the delivery room with her. And when we were sitting out there on the porch, Pete Rogel talked about it and what the whole delivery had meant for him. It was excruciating. I mean, we were there seeing it, and it, you know, you feel as a parent you can't do anything. And and you keep thinking, it should have been done back at Thanksgiving where it wouldn't have been a big thing. Um, so he was born at 9.30. Really just afterwards, you know, the baby just went to my chest and... Um, just cuddled with him. Um, Dad read him a book um, called I'll Love You Forever. And so he cuddled with him. And my parents held him for a little bit. After that, the nurses did some, a little photo shoot of him to get some pictures of him. And they gave him his first haircut. And they did um, handprints and footprints. Debbie told me that when the baby was born, he was perfect. Yeah, I mean, he... I mean, obviously I knew he wasn't a healthy baby boy. I mean, when he came out, you could hear him gasping for air like he was really trying to breathe. He was a little bit over four pounds, so he was still a tiny, a tiny little guy. 
but he definitely was struggling for air. He didn't cry when he was born and he didn't open his eyes at all. But I mean, he struggled. Yeah, when he was, <clears throat> when he was coming on out, I was thinking from what I everything I read that the baby was going to have club feet or, you know, they, they, they said that they wouldn't be able to get footprints. But when they pulled the baby on out and he had legs, I thought my miracle happened. I thought, because the baby was, <laughs> it looked perfect for me. And then I realized once Debbie had it to me that the baby was doing hiccups. I call it hiccups. And finally I realized after about five, 10 minutes that it wasn't hiccups, it was gasping for air. And we just kind of just gave him all the loving until he passed. Um, and then kind of after that, they left the room and left Milo in there for us for a little bit, but then, um, he could have stayed in the room with us for up to 24 hours, but a little after that, we just had her go ahead and take him down. It was just hard keeping him in the room. Some families want to do more by putting the babies on ventilators or providing other support that could prolong their lives from maybe a few more minutes to hours or even days. The Dorberts were pretty clear. They'd come up with the decision to give Milo love and comfort, but not to try to prolong his life. Lakeland Regional Hospital allowed them to bring her parents into the delivery room and also their own doctor and their own nurse who stayed with them. They wanted to make sure our wishes were met and tried to make whatever we wanted, they wanted to make sure it was fulfilled. And they tried to prepare us to the best that they could. Peter talked to us about his frustrations, seeing his daughter go through so much, and he felt much of it was avoidable. I mean, you know, listening to Debbie right now talking about how the hospital said, wanted to make sure that she had her wish there. What's the difference of having the wish when the kid's alive and suffering versus doing it back in Thanksgiving when all of this could have been, it's still tragic regardless of whenever it happens, but it would have been, I mean, watching her labor was ridiculous. I never spoke directly to Deborah's doctors. I left messages at their offices and tried many times to reach them by phone and email. But I did have contact with the hospital where the baby was ultimately delivered. Lakeland Regional spokesman told me that they comply with Florida's laws. That's all I learned. I wanted to learn more about what these decisions are like for doctors and their patients, particularly in states where the laws have changed. So I reached out to May Winchester She's a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Ohio. You know, lethal anomalies are not that uncommon in my line of work. And I've counseled many patients like Debbie. Kind of in our job description, the mom and the fetus really go hand in hand, and we really can't separate the two. 
So we talk about what's going on with each, what's going on with the mother, what's going on with the fetus, the risks to both, and the risks of continuing or not continuing a pregnancy. In Debbie's case, the baby had a rare abnormality called Potter syndrome. He didn't have kidneys, he wasn't producing amniotic fluid, and his lungs weren't developing. Debbie's doctors told her the baby wouldn't survive more than a couple of hours. I asked Dr. Winchester how she counsels patients like Debbie. We talk about what the birth defect is and how, especially in this case, what the importance of a normal amount of amniotic fluid volume is and how that leads to normal lung development and normal fetal development. And we also talk about what life after a potential birth would look like and how that can be really difficult for that baby once it's born for any lethal diagnosis universally. Obviously, the outcome is fatal no matter what you do. In the same vein, pregnancy is not a risk-free condition for the mother. You know, pregnancy for a lot of people is the most dangerous thing they will physically put their body through. And when there is no chance of taking home a healthy baby from that hospital, we have to really think hard about whether or not we, you know, want to go through another 20, 25 weeks of potentially risking, you know, maternal health for that lethal condition that this fetus has. Dr. Winchester works in Cleveland. Ohio had a six-week ban, but it got caught up in the legal system and it's no longer in effect. I know what that's like to have to tell patients the medicine and then tell them the politics. And, you know, this is what I recommend. It's currently illegal in this state. I can try and help you get out of state if you have the time and resources to be able to do so. I never want to treat someone differently because of where they come from or where they are or what they look like. And during the ban and in current states, that's exactly what my colleagues have to do. They have to treat people differently than they would just because of where they live, where they're from. And that is that kind of destroys you as a physician. And, and you know, I've had colleagues that have left states that have had bans because it just takes such an emotional toll on them and they're becoming the doctor they never, they never wanted to be. Dr. Winchester told me how frustrating it's become to have to work around laws that are written by politicians, not doctors. You know, I, I trained for seven years after receiving my MD degree to be a maternal fetal medicine doctor. And I, you know, I, I still find myself in new situations, you know, every week, things that I had never really contemplated. And I think that's something like the politicians don't understand is that there is an infinite number of possibilities where someone might need to have an abortion. And it's impossible to predict, you know, especially as a politician, like you, you just really, that medicine is just way too complex for one law. <laughs> It was so interesting to hear Debbie's mother, Cindy, echo those words. All these doctors, all these nurses have gone to school for years for a reason. We have all these scientists that are doing research. 
we trust that when they finish research that these doctors that have been involved in it will know what kind of care any human body needs. Our government does not spend every day of their life in research. So why should they be able to tell a, a doctor how to treat a woman with a baby? I cannot imagine what my daughter went through watching that baby kick inside, knowing that it's not gonna survive. But the law made it tough for her to be able to get on with her life and basically have to carry through the holidays. That was sad because it had nothing to do with the doctors. The doctors were afraid. They're afraid to take care of us. I spoke with a Republican state senator Kelly Stargell, who'd been a key sponsor of the 15-week ban. Obviously, hopefully in the future we'll have, there will be no abortions, but babies will be wanted no matter when they're conceived. She told me she didn't intend women who were pregnant with babies that had fatal abnormalities to have to carry those pregnancies to full term. She said she was concerned that doctors were acting out of fear of litigation and hampered from following through on what she felt was the true meaning of the law, which has an exception for fatal fetal abnormalities. The Dorbets did tell me that Senator Stargell reached out to them, but they really didn't see any benefit in talking with her. The decision had been out of their hands, and they felt that if she wanted anything to change, for the language to be clearer, she should be talking with doctors and lawyers and boards at hospitals, not them. There's something I told my husband that when people tell me that, you know, everything happens for a reason. Don't, don't tell me that. If people want to really know how I'm doing, I'm not doing okay and it sucks. But sometimes I hide those emotions and just, you know, try to fake a smile and try to find jewelry because I got it. I got a four-year-old and he needs me. After the break, we return to the Dorbert family and go to baby Milo's funeral. We'll be right back. We went back to the Dorberts later that evening. We wanted to learn a little bit more from Debbie and Lee about how they were thinking about the funeral and what it would mean. One of the things Deborah said to me repeatedly was how protracted and slow this grieving process has been for her. She was trying to process what it meant to have carried that pregnancy to term and then to have held her baby for an hour and a half. Images still go through my head of that day and... Like, I'm still not healed from all that. You know, what should have been done a long time ago. Because I could have, that I probably would have been healed by that. Like, healed and moving forward and 
you know, having a direction of what life is going to be like for us. Deborah's husband Lee was pretty quiet when we sat out on the porch talking. But I wanted to ask him more about what it meant for him. And I was struck by how morally complex it was for everyone who was close to Milo. I mean, of course, um, the first thing that comes to mind is you're fighting with the um, thoughts that, you know, did we do enough? Was there more that we could have done? You know, you know, ultimately that answer is no. But, you know, as a, as a parent, you kind of fight with that at first. Um, looking back at it through everything and trying to wonder if, you know, was, was there something else we could have done different or something else we could have done, you know, and at the same time look at the little bit of time that I did have, you know, um, and kind of cherish that. The next morning, Maggie and I arrived early to the funeral and walked in and there was the table set up with two bouquets of flowers and a photograph that had been taken in the hospital of Lee and Debbie and baby Milo in the hospital bed. And they were smiling. And then beside it was the urn, just three inches tall, a little silver urn. Um, the, the pews filled up gradually with Debbie's family, her brothers and sisters, a few nephews and nieces, and some friends. And there was a really striking homily from a Lutheran pastor. God didn't need another angel. Not everything happens for a reason. Milo's death was not part of God's Those were words that I knew would resonate with Debbie. After the service, Debbie and the rest of the family gathered. We joined them at the house. It was so different. There were children playing. Caden with all his cousins, and everybody sat around a long table and ate food together. This is a story that could have no happy ending. And I think Debbie has tried to find some meaning or purpose. Hello. I check in with Debbie once in a while by text to check things, what I'm writing, or just to hear from her. And Maggie and I decided to call her quite recently to find out how she was doing. And we were both struck by how raw she sounded, and almost more raw than right around the funeral when there was so much to plan and she had family around. It isn't over yet. I'm still not okay. Like, it's still the same. Like, I don't know how to describe it other than that I'm still not okay. And that is kind of where I'm at now. I mean, the grieving process, there's no book to read, do this, this, and this, and you'll be 
you'll be better. It's going to take me some time to heal from all of it. And I don't know what that looks like for me. I don't. You know, I think Debbie's grief is complicated by anger about what she went through. And then all these surprises keep coming in, the bills. It's extraordinary. She's had to pay for an induction, delivery, cremation, a funeral. And those bills keep coming in. You know, it's really becoming our reality now. We don't know what six months is going to look like. We don't know what a year looks like, you know. We are just kind of taking it one day at a time because that's all (laughs) we really can handle is just taking it one day at a time. One of the things that really struck me is how Debbie's story has led other people to tell me their stories. And these stories keep coming out of people's backgrounds, they suddenly bring them to me. And and I'm just astounded by the complications people go through, women go through, as they bring children into the world. Frances Steed Sellers is a health and science reporter for The Post. Since she reported this story, Florida has passed an even more restrictive law, a six-week ban. It's currently being considered by the state's Supreme Court. There are still exceptions for the life of the mother and fatal fetal abnormalities. But doctors say these exceptions are still vague. So they don't know how to interpret the law, what they can and can't do. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This story was produced by me with edits from Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Rena Flores, Monica Campbell, and Renita Jablonski. It was mixed by Sam Baer. Our staff includes Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Azadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.